Feeling better? Looking better. Making life better. It's Life Tips. Life, life, life. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life Tips. Life tips. Life tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Here are your hosts. Welcome back to the Life Tips Show, everyone. I'm here with Ken Goldstein. Ken, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm so excited to talk about success and repeating success with you today. Thanks, uh, thanks for the opportunity. Tell us a little bit about your background, just so everyone can hear a little bit. You were, of course, uh, you've served as the chairman and CEO of Shop.com and has a very colorful background, including some work at Disney Online. You've learned a lot in your illustrious career, and that's just a tip of the iceberg. The concept of repeating success, is that philosophically something that you have just done wherever you have gone? Well, um, it's funny because uh, people ask me that. I was introduced the other day as someone who's had nothing but success, and I said, I guess you haven't read the book. Um, yeah. There's no such thing as uh, endless success. <laughs> you, nice. uh, you do everything you can, and uh, so a few things in the course of your career work out, and those are the things you put in your bio, which is why your bio is short. So, no, I've had my share of failures, but as I talk about in the book, I learn from those failures. Got it. And this concept of endless encores is an interesting one as well. Um, you've, you've spoken, of course, and literally brought people to their, to the crowd, to their feet, you know, is, is that a high, do you think that you personally seek with your success is reaching that pinnacle that you've been able to achieve repeatedly? Well, you know, it's less about me. I think than some of the, some of the rising stars that I'm coaching now, I mean, certainly for me, I never wanted my career to be over and, you know, always worried when I was getting a lot of success as a young person that I would, you know, like a lot of young people, you know, burn out quickly. Uh, so, yeah, part of it's my, my own, you know, always wanting to be relevant, always wanting to be able to do something that matters. More right now it's about passing the word on to young people, uh, particularly ones who have had some success and are afraid of failing and ones who have failed uh, who need to get back in the ring and try again. Your first book was monstrously successful. This is a rage, a novel of Silicon Valley and other madness. Tell us a little bit about that book and how it's transcended into this endless encores book that you've written. Well, you're very kind uh, to, to use those adjectives. Um, you know, it was a book I always wanted to write. I wanted to write it for two decades and, and it, uh, it came out of business experience, but I wanted to turn it into a, just a big, 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 you know, uh, satirical story. Uh, and so, uh, when we sold shop.com at the end of 2010, uh, my wife looked at me and said, when I met you, you were a writer, you've been a corporate executive for three decades now, why don't you go back to that writing thing? And, uh, so I attacked it and I guess I got to pull a lot of different themes uh, that I'd been, uh, playing with and struggling with, uh, over the years into that story. And uh, I guess it's resonated with a few people. Let's talk about success. Do you feel that there is a pattern with, with CEOs in particular and their success and how they drive the train? And, and what's the balance of that pattern? Is, is it leadership? Is it operation strength? Is it insights? Is it gut reaction? Is it analytics? Is it data? Is every CEO different? What's your take on, on this pattern of success from your perspective? So yes to everything that you just said. <laughs> yeah. Sounding yes. You know, no, every CEO is different. Every CEO is unique. Every, you know, every executive, every creative manager is unique. Uh, but I think in terms of the pattern, uh, the ones who don't see failure as terminal, I think, are the ones who go on the longest. What I like to say is, uh, 
if it's learning, it's not failure. And I think the ones who encourage failure, you know, you know, uh, you know, bounds around it, not not you know, failure that'll wipe out the entire piggy bank. But the ones who accept failure as a process of learning are the ones who both themselves uh, find themselves with more uh, repeat successes, and the ones who have staffs who stay in place and find themselves with more repeat successes. So I think encouraging, you know, fail fast, fail often, and and take that learning and apply it back and get right back, you know, right back into the game. Do you feel that CEOs need to specialize to really be effective? For example, I find myself in a small business that I run having to be the manager, the leader, the innovator, and probably three other things. What's your take on that? And do you think at some point you can't be at all? You have to find your strength and build a team around you. You know, when when I got promoted uh, years ago into general management, I had a very, very wise uh, mentor boss who sat me down and said, you know, this is the most exciting point in your career. You're moving from functional management to general management, and it's a place where you're 90% likely to fail because most general managers fail. And I wasn't sure if it was a, if it was a cheerleading speech or if I was getting, you know, already, you know, writing down the performance review before I mm-hmm. started. Uh, but it's hard, you know, because everybody today, I don't care who you are, unless you start your own company, comes up through functional management. You're an engineer, you're an accountant you're a marketer, you're a sales guy. Uh, and then one day, if you're lucky, either you go out on your own as a general manager or you're promoted into general management, and then all those things that you were talking about that you have no expertise in, suddenly they all report to you. So you've got to figure out how to do that. You're not a lawyer, you've got to manage legal. You're not an accountant, you've got to manage finance. And it is hard. And if you don't figure out how to delegate and who to trust, you can get in an awful lot of trouble. And that's why lots of general managers and presidents and CEOs fail. I'd like your take on one thing before we dive into the the three essentials that you look at uh, pretty closely in the book. Um, This concept that I've sort of been riveted to in my life with four types of people that you need to successfully run a company, a bear, a rabbit, an owl, and a turtle. (laughs) Let me explain those to you, and I'd like your thoughts on whether or not, in fact, this team with different skill sets makes sense to you. Your, your turtle is your accountant. In order to get X, you need Y. Y to get Z. Your bear is your, uh, you know, my way or the highway. This is the, the the way we march down the road of success. Your your owl is your source of wisdom. Been there, done that. Has the vast experience needed. And your rabbit is your idea source that that from which innovation comes. And their desk, by the way, is probably a mess, which might give you a hint with with what I'm all about. What's your take on that? And how does that fit with your book? Well, my take is that you need to write a business parable. Uh, that's what you need to sit down and do, Byron, because you've got a business parable there. And I think <laughs> it probably resonate with a lot of people just like endless encores. That's your personal experience, and I would write it down and make it as interesting a story as you can. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of merit in what you're saying. Uh, I talk in, in my book about diversity is a necessity uh, for, for broadening the success of your business. And that's what your archetypes are all about is diversity, right? You don't want one point of view. You need multiple points of view. You need multiple points of view to argue with each other intelligently, but also to support each other intelligently. And without all of those archetypes or all of those different points of view at the table, uh, you know, you're not going to get something interesting. One of the problems in big corporations is there's just, uh, you know, such a migration towards sameness. We all have to get along. You know, we can't have conflict. And you look at the great companies uh, that, that really achieve something, uh, companies like Apple, companies like uh, you know, Intel in its, in its day, 
and they were all about what they call a constructive conflict, uh, putting people with different points of view and different personality styles together to see what would come of it. So I, I'm looking forward to your parable, and uh, when that time comes, maybe I'll have a radio show and I'll interview you. I'm going with your book, not not one I haven't written. So <laughs> I've got too many tasks on my list to even approach it. But I love love your your feedback on that. It's it's been a fun story for me to actually talk with people about. But let's go to your thought and concentrating on these three essentials: people, products, and profits. Let's go to people first. Why, in your mind, are people so critical? Uh, is and by the way, is it the people around you, or is it the people you do business with? Let's explain that a little bit. It's both, uh, and again, I have this this just ultimate reverence for talent and this ultimate reverence for customers, uh, because that's where business occurs. It occurs in the minds of people. You know, when you you talk about solving this problem of the chicken and the egg, products don't create themselves. People create the products, and so, so by putting the right talent together talent that can challenge each other, challenge that has an expertise in what it says, not just people with ideas, but the expertise to create the ideas. That's where everything starvation is. And from that, lots of good ideas will occur. And if the one that we're working on today isn't the greatest one in the world, they'll pivot to something else. I just haven't found anything more important. Uh, you know, John Houston used to say the most important part of making a movie is casting. I've said that a, you know, a million times in different, in different forums, and it's true. But it's not an easy thing to do, and people don't spend enough time thinking about it. If you hire the right people that are smart enough uh, to to you know to to make it work, do you think if you had your choice of people, products, or profits, and maybe I should ask this to you later, but let me ask it to you now: Do you think that people are the center the centerpiece of it all? Absolutely, and and it's almost a priori, right? I mean, you can't have products and profits if you don't have the people there. So what's the substitute? And even if you did, if you inherited a business that was basically streamlined down to terminal value, it was just creating cash, the cash flow would run out if there weren't people to do something interesting. So I'm a people person, and as I said, it's both people creating the products and the customers that you're responding to. And I think that the great leaders know that, embrace it, and spend a lot of time agonizing over it. The big ideas will come and go. The big ideas that you think are the big ideas probably aren't as big as you think you are, they are, but you can't have people that, you know, they're never going to be everything that you need, and so you always need more, and you need to give them the resources and the time to come up with great stuff. So what's your secret to attracting and motivating and retaining great people? Well, you know, it's no, no secret. It's giving them a place that they want to work. It's giving them culture that, you know, it makes it – I want to get up in the morning and I want to give my best. I've heard so many people tell me off the record, you know, well, I've got this idea for this product or this project, but I'm not going to tell my boss because then the company will have it and I don't really want to do it there. Hey, I don't want those kind of people. I want people bringing their best ideas in. I want them having fun. I want them to stay till it's complete. So really giving them that environment, the culture. What I say to people is if we're doing this right, this should be the opportunity for you to do the best work of your career surrounded by people who also want to do the best work of their career. And if you're building that environment, I think you got a chance. Does the culture make the people or do the people make the culture? Well, you know, all, <laughs> it all starts, unfortunately, at the top. The boss walks the walk, and it's very hard to, to uh, separate, even in a founding situation, a startup situation, or a big corporation. The, the personality of the CEO will be reflected, but as you add – five, ten, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand employees, sure, the employees start to add 
little bits and pieces of themselves to it, and it is the people who make the culture. But I think in terms of when it gets out of control or it starts to go in a direction you don't want to get in, you don't want to let it go, I think that's when leadership has to step in and say, let's go back to our core values. You know, think about HP, right, the HP way, which guided that company for, what, 30, 40, 50 years, and then somehow they forgot about it, and look what happened to HP. I mean, that was a great culture. It was written down in a book, and I guess they forgot to read the book. There are three words I'd like you to respond to regarding leaders of, of, of these these tribes, I like saying. Uh, my wife uh, runs global sales for a company called Intercall and has a, has a big job. And she lives by three sort of things that make her tick, she thinks at least, and, and particularly how she's perceived by the people that work for her. And that's firm, fair, and friendly are her big three words. Do you think that CEOs need sort of characteristics like that, that they – they keep on their on their radar screen at all times that define who they are. Tell us about how you as a CEO think that leader on the yeah, top. Yeah, well, I think, I think fair is, is a big one, right? Uh, I mean, fair has to be interpreted all different ways, but objectivity, you know, not calling out favorites, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I think fair is really important. I think firm's important in that keeping people on a path um, is important. But you can be too firm, right? You can be so rigid in the point of view that you had when you began the project. If the market changes, I think sometimes you have to be flexible and, uh, and ease into it. Um, friendly. I've had bosses who are friendly. I've had bosses who are not friendly. On some days, I'm friendly. and some days, I'm not friendly. I think yeah. approachable and respected um, are probably good, good synonyms there for friendly, but certainly approachable and always an open-door policy. Mm-hmm. Let's move to products are pretty important. If you take shop.com, you had lots of products and things. And tell us about product, particularly with shop.com in the back of my my mind, at least as I ask that question. Yeah, well, you know, with shop, there was a very competitive situation. You know, there were lots of marketplaces for products. And one of the things that we decided was to really make it, you know, a vertical, you know, focused on a customer segment. I had a wonderful chief marketing officer who, you know, went all the way back to Ralph Lauren and really learned her stuff. And she created a profile for our customer called Megan. And everything was, would Megan buy this, would Megan buy that? And that's how she determined all the merchandising. So when we're thinking about our product, our marketplace that represented 44 million different products in the marketplace from like 2,000 stores, it was a marketplace like anybody else's marketplace, but we added the touches to differentiate it and make it special. And every day we asked ourselves, you know, is this something that Megan would, would go for? Is this something that Megan would engage in? You think it's that simple, really? First of all, that's brilliant, and I love the single persona and focusing the business around that. The problem is most companies try to have three to seven personas with who they're selling to in different programs and price points. And Do you think there's a critical element to, to this single, isolated focus and knowing who your customers are and trying to reach them and go after them, particularly with product development, both software, hardware, uh, you know, the whole bit? Well, you know, it's I, you know that was a way we approached it in that company. I, you know, I think it's differentiation and excellence. You know, these you know, I go to these forums, these entrepreneur forums, these incubators, and it's like these guys are doing this app, and it's slightly better than the app that's out there. Or these guys are doing this app because that app doesn't do this, and you know those little things. And I'm going, hey, you know, that app has 20 million downloads. Is your app, you know, different enough that they're going to delete 20 million downloads and upload yours? If it mm-hmm. is, go for it. If it's slightly different, it isn't going to do it. So mm-hmm. I think it's about differentiation and then the touches. Disney teaches you that. I mean, 
every touch, right? Every bit of polish, every bit of sparkle. You know, when is the product ready? You know, it's never ready, but you keep putting those touches on it and that sparkle on it so that it really does differentiate from the competitors that are out there. And these are touches on the product. These are variations of the product. It, everything, you know, it, it's like we're going through it right now, uh, you know, at a, at a company that I, I'm on the board of ThriftBooks. And, you know, we can do an infinite number of different things to make it a better site to buy uh, used books. But we create a product roadmap that makes ours different from what Amazon is doing. We, we also sell in the Amazon Marketplace. It's a great place to sell, but we have different features on our site. Um, there are competitors who do it. And so, again, it's looking for those things that light up and delight the customer in ways they hadn't expected and hadn't thought of. And when you get that kind of an idea and you start to see the smiles around the table in the room when your employees, your engineers are, are you know, proxies for your customer, those are the features that you go after. And when you do them, you do them 100%. You don't do them 90%. You do them all the way through. Talk about product betterment with us for a second. Do you think that there's more value out of your employees that are touching customers with the product to come up with ideas for betterment and establishing some priority there? Or do you think that uh, you know, ideation should be more think tank driven with people that really understand with, for example, inf- input from professionals like your former CEO, a CMO rather, with, with Roots and Ralph Lauren, you know, the, the of course the old you know, uh, decisions by, by the hippo, the highest paid person, person's opinion matters more. How do you, with regards to product decision, how do you weigh all these challenges and figure out where to focus your product development team and, and or team of developers and what they do next in establishing priority? Yeah, that, that is a key. And that wonderful CMO that I had, much like every chief marketing officer I've ever worked with, spent two hours every week on customer service calls, either taking the customer service calls or listening into them. So she wanted to be as close to the front lines. I did the same thing as Deb. You know, we started that back at Bourbon. Everybody did a, did a shift in customer service. Everybody did a shift on the production line. You've got to learn that stuff, and you've got to be close. Mm-hmm. You know, the hierarchy today is inverted. The CEO is not at the, not at the top of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. The CEO is not indispensable. The customer is at the top of the pyramid. The CEO is dispensable. And so the people who are closest to your customers, who are dealing with your customers every day, they know everything. If you're not including them in ideation, you are missing the boat. Mm-hmm. What about priority, though? Doesn't somebody have to make the call at the end of the day of where to put time, energy, money, and resources, particularly with software development and on the B2B side? Those are tough calls. How do you Absolutely. make those decisions? Absolutely. And I, I wrote a blog post years ago, I think I talk about it in one of the chapters of Encore, uh, called Product Development is Not Democratic. You know, there's a difference between consensus and compromise. And yeah. at the end of the day, great products uh, are not, you know, they're not checkboxes on did we get this, do we get this. Somebody has a vision, pulls the, pull the, pulls the project together, listens to what the customers have to say, listens to what the customer service has to say, but makes decisions. And I don't think product development and the final analysis is, uh, is democratic. I think it's, it's consensus-driven, but it's vision-driven, and someone has to make good calls or you will have a mishmash. Completely agree. As Steve Jobs told us all, you know, it's not your customer's job or responsibility to make your product better. Right. Absolutely not. They can tell you if they like it or if they don't like it. (laughs) Exactly. That's about it. I think that's where he draws the line in the sand. (laughs) Uh, And and quite a few of them have been well-liked, as we all know. 
Yeah. Um, no, you get into trouble in ideation because, you know, you want to include everybody's ideas. And I know yeah. it hurts some people's feelings, but sometimes their ideas are no good and you have to say it in a nice way. But you can't put the bad ideas in the product just to make people happy. Boy, I could have uh, for you quickly 25 questions about this very topic. Let's just dive into one. So, you know, you talked about culture, the environment, the people, and, and you know, building transparent, great environment. Everyone has a voice. Everyone listens. Particularly imagine small, you know, 10, 20-person companies now, right? Um, but there is tremendous danger in that when it comes to process, procedure, efficiency, and the other things that will drive our next line of discussion, which is profits, right? Is right. there a fine line between these things, people, products, profits? I mean, man, these are these you've you've you have a triangle of, of things that if overlapped improperly here, massive problems can happen. Do you agree with that? Yeah, well, can you talk a little bit about absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why so many products fail. Why do so many products fail? I mean, this people go, you know, yeah, product development is fun. You know, it's like writing a book. It's fun. You know, it's a massive amount of detail work, revising, yeah. refixing, balancing, and every once in a while you get lucky, you know, and, and your product sticks. But to your point, you know, and this is a key, right? I think with good leaders and bad leaders, you know them when you see them. You need enough process to hit your release date but not so much process that you're silencing the bad idea or silencing the good ideas and the refinements that are going to add the polish. And boy, if I could write that down in a book, I could sell, you know, one to everyone in, in the entire business world. But that's, that's the feeling of a great leader to know when it's time to move forward, when the discussion is over, because there is a deadline, you have got an order at Best Buy and you have to deliver it on that date, uh, but not silencing the dialogue that is going to be the one feature that puts you over the top. And yeah, that is the feeling. Is in fact, Paul in Endless Encore is the young guy, and that's exactly what he's going through. Which is the team's telling him, "Boss, we have to hit the release date," and he's saying, "Yeah, but I just did demos of the product, and they say it's terrible." And they're like, "Okay, which one do you want? You know, do you want the product finished uh, on the date that we set, or do you want it better?" And he's staring into his glass of red wine, not knowing what to do. Mm -hmm. You have clearly found yourself in that position, as have I. Don't you always rule in favor for betterment? It depends, you know, I mean, yes, in a philosophical ivy tower, you know, or if I'm Mark Zuckerberg and, and, you know, can control the world, you bet. I say my release date doesn't matter. But if it's, you know, October 1st and you've got an order sitting at Walmart or you've got an order sitting at Target and it's, you know, it's a make or break order for you, it is yeah. an immensely difficult decision, immensely. And sometimes mm -hmm. you do, you go into the board and you throw yourself, you know, you impale yourself and say, I'm going to call these guys back and say we're not going to ship the order because I don't feel good about it, and we're going to take the hit on earnings, and sometimes the board says, no, you're not. You're going to ship the product, and it's just tough. It's, there's no one good answer, but yeah, if I have a choice, if I'm king of the world, I want to make the product better. Let me ask you about that decision-making process. Clearly at shop.com, you know, you had some interesting decisions to make with what your product offering would be, what your target audience, you know, you would, you would try to, you know, shoot for, um, you know, what's an example of a really good decision you made and a really bad decision you made? Maybe we can <laughs> learn from both. Yeah. Well, the good decision was, you know, so much traffic on the internet, as you know, to uh, marketplaces is keyword driven and, and you live or die by your SEO, your search engine optimization. And so, you know, we were adding more and more and more products that so we would have more and more and more keywords that would show up. So we'd have more and more traffic that would show up. And, and when we decided to go with this vertical strategy, 
I was being really focused on, you know, on a mom consumer and the things that mattered to her. And, you know, you would say, say things like, you know, uh, auto parts, you know, is that something that we're going to include, even though the lots and lots of word searches. And we'd say, well, that's, you know, make kids going to buy shoes and scarves and, and you, know, you know, you know, clothes for the kids for school. No, we don't want auto parts on the homepage. And I got a lot of grief for that. You know, I say, well, look how many, how many, you know, customers we're not going to have here. And I say, yeah, but look how many good ones we're going to have here, you know, because of that. So uh, mm-hmm. I think that was a good decision because it let us differentiate our personality, but certainly not without some cost. Hmm. And we're dying to hear a bad decision that you made. No, oh, gosh, you know, you want to, you want, you want to embarrass me in front of all my, in front of all my peers. <laughs> Well, you know, um, just slightly, slightly bad. <laughs> just, yeah, just, you know, I think whether you send it later. <laughs> yeah, probably um, being a little too conservative early on uh, in terms of the uh, number of uh, of stores and uh, and merchants. It was, you know, it was an arms race, right? Who could get to the biggest collection the fastest? And I wanted again, I'm to err on the side of quality. Uh, so uh, sending the sales force out in the field. Uh, I would set targets for, you know, how many new stores, how many new SKUs I wanted every week. And uh, they would push back and say, yeah, well, we could add twice that many. We could add three times that many. I say, yeah, but if the algorithm doesn't digest them, if they're not in the index, you know, clearly, you know, clearly tagged, how good is that going to be? And I think in hindsight, given that it was an arms race, I probably would have uh, gone the other way and I would have been more aggressive sooner and probably been willing to take on a little more chaos earlier in the process than I was. Wonderfully brave answer. Thanks much for that. How do you know when the three P's all come together and you're running as efficiently as you can be, as you can run? Yeah. Well, number one, you're in business, right? (laughs) That's a a good way to know. I always start with, you know, are the lights on today? And, you know, that's a nice way of saying is the income stage showing positive? Is the cash flow stage statement showing positive? So many of these uh, young entrepreneurs, you know, they, they raise 30, 40, 50, $100 million of capital, and you know, they add 400 employees, 500 employees, 600 employees, and they're burning cash, burning cash. And look how great this is. We've added all these employees. I'm going, we have, we're not making a nickel. I mean, you know, there's nothing here. When do we turn the corner? So I think, number one, is there a healthy business model that's in place that's sustainable? Are you paying your own, are you paying your own bills, and are you returning some form of capital or or value creation to the people who took the risk to invest on you. Uh, secondly, I think it's do your employees want to come back? You know, in Endless Encores, I talk about, you know, the death march. You know, you can march people down to a product release, but if they're all exhausted at the end of it and demoralized and don't want to come back, okay, you had a product launch, but I don't think you have a company. And uh, and then I guess third, you know, are you really doing? I don't I don't like to call them post post mortems. I think that sounds kind of kind of you know gruesome. I call them postpartums because after the child is born, the product is out in the world. You know, talk about what went right, what went wrong, and codify that learning. And if, particularly if you failed, because you learn more from your failures than your successes. You can't repeat your successes, but you will absolutely repeat your failures. So codify those, share those, take it on the chin like I just did. And uh, and say, look, we're not going to do that again. We're going to do it different that time. So I think those are some things that tell you you're going in a good direction. Super helpful. With regards to looking at the health of your your company, can you take a consultative approach to analyzing your process and your procedure of each three of these essentials in your mind? And how long does it take to do that diagnostic? And and how can your book help with that? It, you know, it's so funny you, you say that. I, I just wrote a blog post. I haven't published it yet. I think it's going to come out in the next couple of weeks. 
um, about you know uh, how do you how do you put things in perspective so that you know you know the right amount to put in today, the right amount to put in tomorrow, and it comes down to uh, you know performance reviews, which I hate, right? I don't like doing annual performance reviews. I like fixing things now. I don't want to wait and tell you what you're doing for a year. I want to tell you now. And so if the annual performance review could just completely go away and we could just have a dialogue like you and I are having with our employees every day for five or ten minutes, I think performance metrics would improve dramatically. But particularly in big corporations, we like to have that big formal, you know, check off the boxes and, you know, just in case something goes wrong, you know, was the employee unnoticed and all those things. But I think they're demoralizing. Um, I'd rather talk to you on the spot and be coaching in real time than, than doing, you know, a big formal, you know, performance review. Great point. Let's take a break, everyone, and back just in just a moment. Life Tips will be right back after this short break. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is authoritylabs.com. Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. Whether you're running sites with just a few or millions of keywords, what you need is AuthorityLabs.com. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know their SEO experts. But did you know they can help you with PVC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. Oh yeah, my day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use CertifiedKnowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. When you started your business, you first listened to your professors. Now that your business is growing and gaining ground, you only seek out professionals. PPC Professionals, an industry leader for highly optimized search marketing campaigns with over 30 years of combined management experience. Our professional approach to every campaign helps you find every avenue of revenue so that you can not only stay ahead of your competitors, but get a return on your investment and increase your bottom line. PPC Professionals, personal, professional, PPC services. PPCProfessionals.com. And now back to Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Here are your hosts. Ken, great having you on the show today. Welcome back, everyone. Good to be here. Right on. Give us your prediction of the future and what business is going to look like five or ten years from now. If we all focused on people, products, and profits, what would that look like? 
wow, well, so this is the prognostication where, you know, I say it, and then in 10 years somebody plays it back for me and said, you know, you said that thing, I, I, you can get in nothing but trouble. But uh, all right, I'll go <laughs> out on a limp. You know, one thing that I think has become very, very clear is the oldest person in the room isn't going to be the CEO. And, you know, that when I was getting into business, uh, the CEO had gray hair or no hair. <laughs> you know, they were, they were veteran. They were grizzled. And, you know, you, you guys, you got guys like, you know, Larry and Sergey and, and, and Mark, you know, out there. And, uh, you know, there's no, no, uh, nothing wrong with uh, working for someone that's half your age. And I don't think it happens, you know, you know, terribly often right now. But I think in 20, 30 years, uh, young leaders are going to be a real big deal and certainly more and more women leaders. And uh, I think people are going to have to be comfortable with uh, wherever they are in the world, wherever they are in their career, whoever is, quote, the C-level team, that's who's running the company. So I think, I think youth is really important. At the same time, I hope that those young leaders um, are smart and take on mentors because while, uh, you know, while they may know the functional areas or they may know the engineering or they may know the sales and marketing, uh, the very difficult process of keeping uh, people working together smoothly does is something that comes with age, and, and I hope that they listen uh, you know, in, in that capacity. Will customer service become the driver for both success and retention and profitability? And if so, how soon? I would say, with the exception of a couple of industries like the airline industry, where there's sort of a very uh, almost entrenched monopoly right now, customer service is everything. And I think that, that well, again, I just had great, great mentors coming up through the business world. And uh, one of them taught me very early on, you have two choices with customer service. You can make it a cost center or you can make it a profit center. Which one would you prefer? I said, do we really have a choice? And he said, of course, you're the CEO. You can do anything you want. I said, well, let's make it a profit center. And I think if you look at your customer service not as a cost that needs to be minimized, but an investment in your customers that will pay out over time, then you're going to look at customer service a whole different way. Um, so that, I believe that's today, and I don't believe that's going to change. I'm going to ask a little deeper on that as well, um, coming with a, a huge footnote in this statement. Another company that I own besides LifeTips is called Writer Access, and we've gone from zero to 16,000 customers in five years with absolutely no sales reps, no outbound calls, 100% inbound. My question is, do you think that we will enter a phase where customer service combined with great products, combined with good people at the company, will become the drivers and be able to attract and grow businesses without pesky sales reps making cold calls trying to sell people? people's stuff. Yeah, you know, you're asking a real fundamental question, which is, can you sell people stuff that they don't want? And the answer is you can one time, right? And, and mm-hmm. then, you know, do you have a customer or do you have a sale? And again, smart leaders like you who are building businesses tell the people who work for them in no uncertain terms, I don't want transactions, I want customers. So if you're not treating a customer well, if you're just trying to close the sale for today's commission, you're not doing yourself any good and you're not doing the company any good. Exactly. The whole idea of lifetime value is where it's at. And if you, we haven't talked much about brand building, but if you want to build a brand over time, your brand only works if it has a lifetime value. And why would you forfeit the lifetime value of a customer for a transaction today? It just doesn't make any sense at all. And yet, if people are on quotas or they have a quarter to make, sometimes they will. But it's not the way to treat customers. You treat your customers as precious, precious uh, 
business partners who are going to be with you for 20, 30 years and who you will provide value to and who will pay your salary and keep you in business. Those customers are everything. Now, having said that, my roots are entrenched in, in sales, perhaps like yours as well, right? We both probably grew up in that environment of, of needing to prospect and explain to customers our value proposition and do it in creative, interesting ways and get under the skin of our customers and really start solve their problems. My question is this. I want to go to your people for a second, one yeah. of your pillars. Yeah. You know, is this – do you think that we can create – people that can both service incredibly well with incredible skills and, you know, upsell in the sense of, you know, uh, be motivated to help customers make their businesses better with our products and services. Is there a new skill set we need? Because by the way, customer service has been a camp very much divided with, with sales. They're, they're seemingly polar opposites, but back to this new core people structure we've talked about today can you successfully transition a customer service team to become not just a cost center and to a profit center? And what kind of skills do you need different people in there to make that transition? And will that be the future of the skills we need to teach our young people, particularly as they enter our companies and, and, and progress up the ladder? Yeah. You know, I don't think it's the future. I think it's the present. And mm. uh, I, you know, I've got, you know, lots and lots of examples to, to cite, but, uh, you know, I had the, the immensely good fortune to, to work for the, you know, the Walt Disney Company for 10 years, and, you know, that company does the, the majority of its, uh, you know, top-line revenue and profits off of its theme park business, and its theme park business, you know, employs the most hourly workers of any division, the only, you know, a huge number of hourly workers who are out there in the park, you know, uh, at the gate, uh, in the merchandise stores, you know, in the food stores. And, you know, you've been in Disney Park. Why are those people smiling? Why are those people, if you drop a, an ice cream cone, why do they, you know, you don't have to ask to have it cleaned up. They clean it up and give you another one. And those employees are completely empowered, you know, at the very front lines to make the guest experience magical. Um, it works. You have to employ them. You know, it goes back to that same thing. You know, you look at the org chart. Where does customer service report? If it reports to the VP of operations, that's a cost center. If it reports to the VP of marketing, that's a profit center. So I always have a report to the VP of marketing because I want those customer service people driving my revenues and driving my profits by serving my customers, not a cost that I can eliminate. Hmm. How do the three Ps fit with small startups? We have lots of them that listen and tune into our show. Well, I, I, they, they apply to small ones as well as big ones. You know, I, I've had this, this ability to go back and forth between very, very small companies, and sometimes they've gotten bought and then big companies like Disney. But, again, your people, no matter how, how big or small your company is, you're always going to be resource-constrained. Everybody says, oh, if I only had all the resources of Disney. Well, I can tell you at Disney the number one thing people would say in meeting is, we don't have enough resources, you know, yeah, up to right. books and, you know, and the entire staff, you know, is, you know, the size of the management team for the offsite. Uh, but you, no matter how many people you have, uh, a few or many or just yourself, it's got to be the right people with the right tools, uh, with the right skill sets and getting continuing education. It absolutely matters. Products, the smallest of companies, look at a company like Pinterest. I was, I was talking about them at a book reading the other night. I mean, these guys, bright, bright guys, I mean, they were down to their last nickel. I mean, they, they didn't, you know, they weren't going anywhere. And then all of a sudden, this Pinterest product just went crazy. This, this pinboarding on the line, 
and you know there it was a couple of guys with a vision and and the thing took off and the next thing you know they got a thousand employees so again it was the people that came up with the product and that drove the business model so i don't think this is a small or a big company thing i think it's the way that it works but it's the way that it works for me and if it doesn't work for you you got to do it your way but i think it's applicable Ken, this has just been a great conversation today. I want to I want to thank you so much for being on with us. Well, thank you so much. And you know, anytime I get to talk about you know the way that I, I want to see the business world operate, that's why I wrote in with Encores. Uh, it's just a pleasure, and it's a pleasure to talk with someone like you who totally gets it. And it's obvious that you get it because you're doing it every day. We have two final questions for you. Who would you like to get a hold of you, and how can they get a hold of you? Right. Thanks a lot. Uh, well, obviously, uh, the book's on sale. We were uh, published. Published date was uh, September 22nd, so we're on sale in all the you know online bookstores and what have you. So uh, you can get there through my book site, KenGoldsteinAuthor.com. It sounds just spelled just like it sounds. And if they have any feedback and want to share it with me, there's a contact form on that. I love to hear from people. And if you read the book please post a little review on Amazon. You don't have to be a professional book reviewer. Just if it resonated with you, just a couple of sentences of why, because that's what people care about when they're buying a book. They don't care about what I say. They don't care about the PR tour. They care about what other customers say. That's what they look at, the customer view. So if it means something to you, share those thoughts with other people. And a website where they can find your book and find you. And who do you want to hear from? I want to hear from anybody who's passionate about business, anybody who's passionate about people, products, and profits, and they can find me at KenGoldsteinAuthor.com. Terrific. Thanks again for tuning in with us today, Ken. Thank you so much, Byron. It's been a great, great conversation, and uh, I, hope, uh, I hope you keep up the, uh, keep up the mantra and uh, keep doing the things that you're doing in business because you're doing the right things. Terrific. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. I hope your life's a little smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of webmasterradio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of webmasterradio.fm is prohibited.